Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. Thank you, uh, Priscilla, for reading that. Um, we, uh, we're so thankful for um, uh, for for uh, for. Angie, for reading the scripture to us today. I'm sorry, for uh, leading us in worship today. I got my, my things mixed up there. Um, but uh, no, thank you, Angie, for blessing us. I was blessed this morning. Was anybody else blessed by uh, Angie leading us? Amen. Amen. Um, so thank you for leading us. Matt and uh, Heather are sick. And so, um, so Angie, who was going to be helping lead this morning, jumped in last minute and uh, did a killer job. So thank you. Thank you also, Pre, for reading the scripture to us this morning. We have a high view of God's word um, as we, um, as, as a church. And so we, as we commit ourselves, as we come each Sunday morning, we commit ourselves to uh, the reading of God's word. Um, a couple of announcements before we get, connect, uh, get started. If you're new with us um, or if you're watching us online or you're here and you want to just learn more about who we are as a church, um, you can go to, uh, you can look at the, uh, the link on the screen. There should be a QR code that you can scan um, or you can go to coahforesthills.org slash connect. We would just like to get to know you a little bit better, uh, let you know how we can connect you to what's going on here at the church, help you find uh, a study or help you uh, build some relationships with others. We'd love to help you do so. Also, if you uh, want us to pray for you or there's just something um, you want to update your information, get our newsletter, be sure to uh, fill out that connection card. Um, Our values as a church are the gospel community and mission. The gospel is the good news that Jesus gave his life for us so that we could be a part of God's family, Uh, that he paid our penalty on the cross with his blood, as we sung about this morning, so that we could be forgiven of our sins. And so therefore, because of that, we're invited into a new community, a new family relationship centered around Jesus. That word community is a compound word of common and unity. And it means that together as the body of Christ, we come from different cultures, different backgrounds, different ethnicities, all together with a common hope that Jesus is Lord. And so we come together in that. But also we know that this, uh, this good news is not just something we talk about on Sundays or in our community groups or around our dinner tables, but this is something that we share with other people. We believe this good news is just too good to keep to ourselves. So we tell others about Jesus and what he's done, but also live lives shaped by the hope we have in the gospel to see our city changed and to see the gospel go to the ends of the earth. A few announcements before we get moving today. Um, we have some summer studies coming up over the next couple of weeks. We've been taking a break from community groups, but starting on Tuesday, June 22nd, we are going to be having a couple of different groups. This summer, we are prioritizing relationships. So we're going to have a men's group that starts meeting on Tuesdays uh, in June, on June 22nd. Uh, then we're going to have a women's group that meets um, on Wednesday night, starting on the 23rd. And then the final Wednesday night of every month, we're going to come together as a whole church, play games, eat dinner laugh, have a great time. If you don't like to laugh, don't come. If you don't like to laugh, I don't know what's wrong with you. But we're going to have a good time this summer as we build these relationships and these friendships um, and as we, as we kind of turn to kind of work those muscles again, we've got a little bit of atrophy when it comes to this uh, as, as a church. We're going to build these muscles together. Um, also, starting tomorrow, we have a Gen Send team. Gen Send is a program that takes college students for eight weeks 
brings them to a city um, that's focused on church planning and they work with church plants. And so the City on a Hill Network is going to have a group of students for, um, for eight weeks. We, uh, we are getting them these two weeks and they're gonna be loving and serving our neighborhood. They're gonna do some stuff here around the church building. Uh, they're gonna do some stuff working with English High School and the Housing Authority, um, some, some different things in our, in our city is a way to just bless our city. And so what we wanna do is we, I wanna ask you guys to do a couple of things. The first thing I want you to do is I want you to pray for them. Um, just pray for them over the next two weeks that God uses them in a mighty way, but not just uses them, but changes their lives. Because I was in a summer mission program 18 years ago that radically shifted and changed my life. And so I really believe this can happen in, in the lives of these college students over the next couple of weeks. Um, also, um, consider having them into your home. We have a couple of slots open. Um, if you want to do dinner uh, with them, I know the Kennedys are having them for dinner tomorrow night. Um, and so just you can build some relationships with them because this is more than about them coming to do something. It's about building relationships that are mutually encouraging. And so um, you'll also see them over the next two Sundays. So here's, here's the good news. They're handling t- set up and tear down the next two weeks after today. So can we get a, can we get an amen? Amen. Okay. All right. Let's dive into the text this morning. We're going to be in Acts chapter 17. Uh, We started a series last week on the Apostles' Creed. And you might be asking, why are we focusing on the Apostles' Creed and not say a book of the Bible? Typically, we like to go through a book of the Bible from cover to cover. And uh, the reason we're doing this, and and as as Pastor Bland told us last week, um, we are going to be um, going through the Apostles' Creed for the next 12 weeks because really the Apostles' Creed is kind of just the bare basics of what we believe as Christians. This is the, the parameters of what it means to be a Christian. So it's kind of more of a systematic view of what we believe. And the word creed means a statement of belief. So we are taking the very bare basics of what it means, the basic parameters of what it means to be a Christian. It's kind of like basketball. There are lots of theories about how to play basketball. Um, you can be kind of like the seven seconds or less sons back in the early 2000s where it was run, gun, seven seconds left off the clock and they're shooting. They didn't believe in defense. They were allergic to defense. It'd be like 187 to 145 every game. That was, that was one way to play basketball. The other way to play basketball used to be you had the, the tallest guys you could possibly get, get them down low, run the shot clock down to zero and try to keep the score as tight as possible. Very boring type of basketball. But either, either way that you tend to go, whether you want to go with one of those, the basketball court is always 91.86 feet by 49.21 feet. The rim is always at 10 feet tall. If you, if you don't have that, you're not playing the same game. So in Christians, as Christians, we can disagree on secondary and tertiary issues. But when it comes to the very core basics of Christianity, the parameters, the bounds, there is no room for disagreement. If if we don't agree with the things we're talking about over the next 12 weeks, you are outside of what is called Christian orthodoxy. And so last week, Pastor Bland from City on a Hill, Brookline, helped us see that. He says that the Apostles' Creed gives us clarity on what we believe. This is just very clear, like that we believe in God. We believe in the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, that Jesus Christ died for our sins. This, this is the very basics. He, he talked about how it gives us connection, that this is not something that we just came up with last week. This is something that connects us across time, across culture, across continent, across language. That's why we celebrate different languages in our service as a multicultural church. 
It, it also provides that framework we're talking about, but it also, and this is what really stuck out to me most, is it is about formation. What we believe will lead to what we do. And if we fail to do something, it is ultimately a failure of belief. Several years ago, my daughter, Karis, I think she was about four or five, I was trying to get her to jump off the diving board to me. And she's up there, shaky knees, looking at jumping off the diving board. I said, hey, Karis, jump into the deep end to me. And she's like, no. I'm like, well, just jump off the diving board. She's like, no. I said, well, do you, do you believe, do you trust me? She said, yes. Do you believe I would catch you? Yes. Then jump off the diving board. No, not happening. And we went through this over and over and over and over again. And so we would actually say, did she actually trust me? Functionally, no. In the same way, there was some sort of disconnect in her belief that was leading to her actions. And so what we do is we fix our minds and our hearts and we remember the gospel, the very bare basics of Christianity, because what this does is they shape us and they shape what we believe, which forms how we live. And so today we're going to be looking at the next line, and I believe it is one of the most formative lines for us to believe that we have a good father in heaven. The line we're looking at today is, I believe in God the Father, almighty creator of heaven and earth. If you believe that there is a good God who loves you, who loves you as a father, it will shape the way that you live. And in fact, I, I believe that our life here on earth requires in this to make sense. It requires we have a God who is Father, Almighty, Creator. Now, you might be thinking as you hear that, you know, like, look, I'm not super religious. Uh, I'm not really into that stuff. I don't believe this, this idea that there's a God in heaven. But actually, all of our lives deep down show that we act like it's true. We're all longing for something that we can't put our finger on. And I think every single one of us, whether you believe this or not, want to believe that we're more than just random chance that we're more than just an assortment of cells, but there's some sort of meaning to our lives. And so you could say that you don't believe this, but don't you want to believe that there's a good father, a good creator who's in control of all things and who ultimately wants what's best for you? And so the Greeks that we look here at here in Acts chapter 17 in, in the city of Athens are no different than us. And in fact, what they did is they, they erected a, an idol to an unknown God. They said, we, we know there's something out there more than what we can see in front of us, but we're not sure what it quite is. And all of us are doing that. We live our lives like we're living them erected to this unknown thing that we can't seem to grab, wrap, wrap our heads around. So let's look at Acts chapter 17 and look at what it means that God is our Father, Almighty Creator. The first thing we see from the text is that we have a God who can be known. We have a God who can be known. So God is a Father. This means he's not distant. That means that he's knowable. For some of you, if you had a bad relationship with your father, the idea of your father being close and someone you knew might be tough for you to wrap your head around. But the Bible says we have a good father who is knowable, who's not far from us, who, who desires to be known from us, who draws near unto his people. You know, we often hear that today is the, is the toughest time in human history to be a Christian that this is the, the least likely time that someone's going to believe. And the reason we think this is, you know what, people are just too skeptical. They're, you know, maybe we think people are too immoral or they're just too educated or, uh, to, to really take things on faith. Sometimes the church has a bad reputation and it gets muddy with politics. But if you look at the first century Roman Empire, it was a lot like our, our city today. 
It, it was so much like our culture today. And in fact, back then, it might have actually been harder for them to believe. But yet this is the culture where Christianity dug deep roots. This is the, the culture where Christianity flourished. And in fact, within 250 years, Christianity completely changed the Roman Empire. How did this happen? See, Paul's strategy was to go straight to the heart of the culture. In going to Athens, Paul was going to the center of Roman and Greek life. He was going into a place that was the center of education, the center of culture, uh, where all philosophy came from, where art and industry all flowed from this place. And so culture was made in Athens and then went everywhere else in the Roman Empire. It's kind of like if you ever saw the movie Devil Wear Prada. I have to admit, I've, I've seen that movie. Um, there's this one scene where, the, the, where uh, Anne Hathaway's character gets up. She's talking about buying things off clearance. And... Um, and the, and the main character, she, she says, well, you know what? That decision for that thing to be on that rack was made a decade ago. That someone decided this, that this would be worth wearing. But by the time it got to this clearance rack, you know, there's this pathway that basically everything started here in the fashion industry. In the same way, everything starts at the center of the culture where culture is made and then affects everything else. Athens was basically like Manhattan in the way that it creates culture mixed with Boston's education and the prestige of Oxford and Cambridge. And so Paul's strategy was if you reach the city, you reach the world. This is why we're in Boston. This is why I moved here. I wanted to be a part of a church that was in the city for the city to a place that is called the Athens of America. Boston has over 200 colleges and universities. And in fact, one in six sitting world leaders were educated in this city. So if like Paul, we go to the city, we will see God shape the world. But our tendency is to avoid cities. Our tendency is, is to, to go away from cities because you know what? Look, greater Boston is an expensive place to live. Amen. Can I get an amen? Anybody trying to pay rent right now? Cities, cities are dangerous. What am I going to do to educate my kids? We think about all the reasons that we want to avoid the sitting and kind of take more of a path of least resistance. But what if Christians said, I'm going to commit my life to where the most need is, to where, as Keller says, the greatest amount of the image of God per square mile could be? I think we'd see radical change like we did in the early church. Paul went to the heart of the city so the gospel could spread. So our vision to see every person from every culture experience the gospel flows from a city like Boston. What if followers of Jesus so loved their neighbor and, and so told the gospel story and so worked for mercy and justice and so worked jobs that were shaped by what Jesus has done for us in making all things new? I think God's gonna do that through this church and churches like us in this city. So how did Paul operate once he got there? Verse 17, we see that Paul went into the marketplace and he reasoned with people, not argued. It wasn't like a Facebook comment section. He listened to other people. He let them get their entire argument out and then he, they would respond. And so Paul goes to this place and he goes into the middle of the marketplace, not Whole Foods or Stop and Shop. Think like going to Downtown Crossing. That, that, that's, that's the, once, you, once you get that in your head. And so they would have this, this ancient debate and the philosophers, as they hear what Paul's saying, they're both... They're both appalled and intrigued. They're both appalled and intrigued by what Paul says. They, they call him a babbler, but then they invite him to tell them more. 
If you're engaging in gospel conversations with other people, you're going to experience this exact same thing because you're going to experience being repelling other people, but also attracting them at the same time. They're like, I don't know that I like what you're saying, but for some reason I like you and I want to hear more. That's that's the space we step into as we step into people's lives and trusting that the Spirit is working in them. And so through all of this, they invite Paul to the Areopagus. This is the center of cultural conversation. And as they're having these conversations, as these things are happening, this is kind of like being invited to the main stage at a TED Talk. Um, Somebody help him find a seat, David. All right, yeah. Um, Welcome. Um, it's like being invited to the main stage at a TED Talk or the Veritas Forum or, or being invited to Google to be able to speak to people who are changing things. And in verse 22, he says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. What's that mean? He saw their objects of worship. He saw all of their idols, all the things around them that they were giving their lives to. And in verse 16, Paul actually, it says that Paul was provoked within Now, that doesn't mean that Paul was like, ugh, pagans. What that meant, there was something happened in Paul where he was led to compassion to engage them. Not offense, but compassion. The same type of compassion that Jesus had for the lost sheep of Israel, or as he saw them as sheep without a shepherd and was compelled from within to go to them. This is a picture of the complex love of God. Not a love that says, I love you by affirming everything about you, but a love that says, I will go to you in the middle of your mess and in the middle of your error, and I will lovingly give you the truth. But also what Paul notes here by saying this is that everyone operates on faith. Everyone is a person of faith. Even someone who would consider themselves an atheist and say, you know what, I only believe in science. You're still a person of faith. Because we're all trying to answer the questions, why am I here? How, how did we get here? What is wrong with me? What's wrong with life? And how do we fix the problems of life? And the reason we can say that someone, if, even if you say you don't believe in God, that's still, a, that's still faith. You're taking a chance on that. You're putting your trust in the facts that you believe that there is no God. You, you're acting on those things and you order your life around them. So all of us are people of faith. And listen, I'm not anti-science. I'm not trying to bag on science here. We believe in science. But the the issue with science is if you take science alone, science answers how, it can't answer why. No matter how far you go back, if you believe that there was just a ball of energy in the universe and the the Big Bang, there has to be a first mover. Something had to push the button. And scientists have walked their way backwards and they still can't answer the question, why? Why? And where this leaves us is it leaves us like the Athenians who could worship all these idols and say, here's how we need to live life, but we don't know why we're here. So we're going to erect this statue to the unknown God. It creates this kind of divided life between we're trying to figure everything out here, but we have this giant mystery above. Francis Schaeffer wrote this book called The God Who Is Is There. And he talked about modern people, how we kind of live in this two-story house. He said, on the bottom floor, we have everything's rational, everything's natural, it's empirical, we can test it. If you can see it, it's real. But then there's this upper story of the house that nobody ever wants to go to. He said, but you can't really avoid the upstairs because this is what all the supernatural things get 
things get put up there in the attic. But deep down, we all know, we all long for this, for what's above, because we know that love is more than just chemicals in our body going crazy. We know that there is some sort of idea of real truth and beauty and goodness out there, and our sense of right and wrong and morals and justice, and all are predicated on this idea. And this is why Paul says that this God, the one that you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you, he can be known. He's an intimate father. And now, if, as you hear Paul say this, it feels kind of arrogant because it's like, okay, well, none of you know, but I know. Paul's not saying, I have some sort of special knowledge that the rest of you just kind of need to figure out. It's the idea that God has revealed himself to us. He has made himself known. And as we unpack this idea of God the Father, God the Father is the first person of the Trinity. The Trinity is the Christian doctrine that we have one God who exists in three persons. We're going to unpack that over the next several weeks, that each one is co-equally God, but yet they are distinct. And so the Father is the first person of the Trinity, the almighty creator, that his purpose is from the beginning in creation, where that his glory would spread over all creation, that God would be seen and known by all people revealing himself. And even after sin entered the world, we see God revealing himself to people. He revealed himself to Abraham and said, through you, I'm gonna make a nation that blesses all nations. He revealed himself to Moses. He revealed himself to the nation of Israel, said, you will bless all people. And he said that he would be their father. The Old Testament doesn't really mention God as father by name very often, but we see Jesus pick this idea up in the New Testament through the Lord's Prayer. What's the very first words of the Lord's Prayer? Our Father. Say it with me. Our Father. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, not God the Father, but God the Son, is the true Son of God, showing us what it looks like to tell everybody what his dad is like. And this is why in John 14, when Jesus says, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father, what he's saying is that you've seen his nature and his goodness, but also how you relate to him with intimacy. And that Jesus promised that one day we would be one with the Father as he and the Father are one. So God is our Father who can be known and wants to know us. But what does the Father do? Secondly, we have a God who created all things. God, this is the beauty of, of God the Father, is that he is intimate, not at the expense of his power, and he's powerful, not at the expense of his intimacy. He is both. Verse 24 says that he is the creator of the world and everything that is in it, being Lord of heaven and earth. The word world here is the word cosmos. When you hear cosmos, you might think space. You might think everything out there. But the word cosmos actually really meant everything. It was the, the created order of the universe. And what this means is that God created a world that, we are, that has purpose and has meaning. In Genesis chapter one, in the creation story, it said that God took what was formless and void and basically brought it into order. And so the ancient philosophers, like we see here in Acts chapter 17, are trying to make sense of the cosmos. They're trying to make sense of existence. 
How do all these parts fit together as a whole? So the Stoics and the Epicureans and everybody before them, and just like us, we're trying to answer the question, how can we be happy in life? And so for the Stoics, it was like, we got to live by the rules. We have to deny earthly pleasure. We can never be happy. We can never smile. It's kind of like a stereotypical New Englander. You can't let anyone know you're having a good day. Get your Dunkin' Donuts and leave. The Epicureans were the other way. They were like YOLO, like we're going to do everything all day, every day, constant parties like Pitbull on South Beach. Like that was the Epicureans. But the problem with that is that neither one of those answer the question, well, how can we be happy in life? Because think about suffering. Does emotionlessness really help you when you're suffering? And the Epicureans, can you really outpleasure pain? R.C. Sproul talks about the hedonistic paradox. What he means is that if you're constantly pursuing pleasure, if, if your desires are not met, you're frustrated. And if you get it, you're bored. And this goes way further back in Greek thought than even what we're seeing here in Acts chapter 17. You look at men like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, who were the three most famous Greek philosophers and thinkers. They were all trying to work out this idea of, of, of basically for there to be anything in existence, there has to be something that is unchanging. And once they finally boiled it down, Aristotle basically came to this place where he identified what he called the unmovable mover that there has to be something out there that is all-powerful, all-knowing, outside of creation itself for creation to exist. And the Bible tells us that that is God the Father, the Almighty Creator, the one that we confess and believe that He created all things. So what does that mean that God cre created all things? For heaven and earth means everything. It means that all things were created by and for him. Every system, every molecule, every drop of rain, every ray of sun, every landmass, every person on earth was created for and by God. And that means that everything in creation is intended to give him glory. The reason that we as people long for the unknown God is because whether we know it or not, we were created for him and our life is in him. Job 33, 4 says, the spirit of God has made me and the breath of the almighty gives me life. In him, we find life, our very existence. If you flip a couple, just over a couple verses later in, in Acts 17, 28, it says, in him, we live and move and have our being. We don't exist without a good creator. It means everything about us, what makes us unique, our desires, our ethnicity, our sexuality, our career, families, our singleness, whatever it is, is meant to honor the creator. Have you ever stopped to ask yourself the question, does my life honor God as my creator? But why does God get say in everything? Just because he created it, why does he get say? Well, the last part is that we have a God who's almighty. We have a God who cannot, that you cannot control. We have a God who you cannot control. Verses 24 and 25 tell us uh, that God does not live in temples made by men, nor is he served by human hands as though he needs anything. In other words, that means that we cannot confine God into a small little box. We can't confine God into Sunday morning at 9 a.m. 
We can't confine God into a community group Bible study. We can't confine God into a morning devotion. We can't confine God into the times that we think we need him and we're okay the rest of the week. What this means is that we have, as Tim Keller calls, a God-sized God. Or as Evelyn Underhill puts it, if God were small enough to be understood, he would not be big enough to be worshiped. We have a God that we cannot control. He is almighty over all things. That constant, the unmovable mover who's required for us to have a world in the first place. And what this means is that is that we, our lives belong to him. But whether, again, whether you believe this or not, we all live this way. We all live like there is a God who is over all things. Even when we don't want to admit it. Let me ask you this question. Are there moral absolutes? Are there things that are just clearly wrong, no matter the culture, no matter the time, no matter what your opinion is? There, are there things that are moral absolutes? If you answer no to that question, you might be saying, well, how can I say something's wrong in this culture, but it's not wrong in the Middle East? Or how can I say something is right here and wrong there? Like, how, I, how, how can I possibly impose my morals on them? But here's the problem with saying that there are no moral absolutes. That's a moral absolute. To say there are none is to have one. But secondly, our own morals kind of betray us. We, we lose ground because why are poverty and racism wrong? Because we would say people have value, right? Well, if there are no moral absolutes, we can't make that statement. Why? Because as Tim, again, Tim Keller says, he says, if evolution and natural selection are true, that we're just evolving into a higher form of existence, there's no reason to care for the poor. There's no reason to care about the oppressed and the marginalized. Why is it that survival of the fittest has worked for you know, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years, but now it doesn't and we're just nicer? It actually requires that there be a moral lawgiver. As C.S. Lewis says, morality requires that there is a God who is over all things. And the Athenians who went, looked at their idols like us, we tend to like our little pocket-sized gods that we use when we need them and kind of live like we don't need them the rest of the time. But we were made for more, to know God as Almighty Father, as Creator of all things. So as we wrap up, there are two implications to the fact that God is our Almighty Father Creator. It means that you're not in control. It means that He gets to define what's good that he is the one who's worthy of following, that, that he is the one we surrender our lives to because he leads to life. And this is actually really good news because you and I are terrible gods over our own, our own lives. Secondly, it means that we have to renounce all other gods, all other idols. An idol is anything that you look to in order to be okay. Anything you look to to find your identity in, anything you look to to find your worth in, Jesus invites you to lay aside those pocket-sized gods for a God-sized God. Only the Bible portrays, portrays God as both in, intimate and imminent, sovereign and close, a father who's an almighty creator. See, this is what Jesus did. Jesus lived with God as his almighty 
God the Son took on flesh and perfectly submitted to God the Father, dying in your place so that you could be a part of God's family. And so if you've not trusted Jesus, if you've not surrendered, and that's the question I asked you this morning, has there ever been a point where you said, I've surrendered my life to Jesus? I fully trust in the blood of Christ that he paid for my sins. If you've not done that, We'd love to talk with you after the service. A few people will be around. Be sure to grab one of them or fill out a connection card and we'd love to talk with you. If you are a follower of Jesus, I want you to rest in this today. You have a good God who loves you, who's an almighty father who wants what's best for you. Submit to that and live in that. Let's pray. 